Hi, I'm Dr. Amy Robbins, and welcome to Life, Death, and the Space Between podcast. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist and medium, and here we explore life, death, consciousness, and what it all means. Today, we have Dr. Alan K. Davis back on the show. Last week, Dr. Davis spoke with us about the science of psychedelics, and today, Dr. Davis is back to talk with us about the clinical practice and applications of psychedelics. So welcome back. Thank you. Happy to be back. So let's dig in to what the research actually looks like. Can you walk me through what the experience of someone going through your clinical study would do and how that would look for them? Sure. So it is a certainly an extensive process, as you might imagine, to get enrolled in a, a, a for any really, uh, excuse me, really for any clinical trial, but certainly for a clinical trial that is uh, administering a Schedule One substance, um, meaning that the hurdles required even to just conduct the study are enormous, not only financially and from a time-consuming standpoint, but both uh, FDA uh, and the DEA, as well as the institutional IRB, all have to agree and be on the same page before it ever gets started. But because of that, that means that every single person that eventually enrolls in the study has to go through an extensive screening process in order to have them both meet criteria, uh, meaning that you know if, if, if we're doing a study for people with depression, we have to make sure they have depression and we have to make sure they don't have any other things that might get in the way of us treating the depression, um, which is a kind of a, a thing in all in itself, trying to find someone who only has one kind of problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also we have to do an extensive uh, exclusion of different things. So uh, the current study that we have going on right now for depression uh, we also have a neuroimaging component. Uh, and so they both get a brain scan before the treatment and after the treatment. And so there's a number of things that might exclude someone for that purpose. So so we go through that whole process, which is uh, including the time in person is anywhere between you know 10 and 12 hours of time with a person, uh, both them filling out you know questionnaires online for us and then coming in for full day assessments, medical assessments, uh, clinical psychology assessment, psychiatry assessment, um, cognitive assessment. Um, and then at the end of that entire process, if they qualify and if they choose to enroll in the study, then they can proceed on. Um, and depending on the study, there may be a wait list control. If they get randomized to that, that means that they have to wait a little bit before they can actually start the intervention. Uh, some studies, people can enroll and they get randomized to different types of drug conditions. There might be a placebo condition. There might be an active condition. Um, so the time, the timeline can differ depending on the study. For our current depression study, people who come in uh, would either get randomized to a delay, meaning they have to wait eight weeks before they can start treatment with us, um, or they can get randomized to immediate, which means they get to start the treatment right away. And at that point, they start engaging either right away or when they finally start the intervention, uh, they have about eight hours of psychotherapy with uh, two therapists. Usually one of the therapists is either a psychologist, a psychiatrist, or a clinical social worker. Um, And then the second guide or the second uh, professional is uh, sometimes also uh, one of those professionals. And sometimes it's uh, a research assistant with clinical 
uh, a little bit of clinical training. Mm. And so uh, at least one of the providers is, you know, a licensed clinical, clinically trained individual. And then we spend about eight hours with the, with the person, but, uh, getting them ready for their psilocybin session. Uh, so that some of that time is spent really talking about the logistics of psilocybin, talking about what are some of the effects that they might have, how to navigate those effects, what the kind of role is of the guides, the therapist guides, what are kind of what is our job there that day for them. Um, we practice, we do kind of like a dry run through of having them kind of get into, you know, into the position of the day, which for psilocybin is usually on a couch in a very lovely um, room where there's art on the walls and, you know, floor rugs and comfy chairs and music and speakers and books and looks very living room like. And in that room with the therapist, you know, the, the, the day is pretty much spent with headphones on, uh, with a track of music playing the entire day, with blindfolds on, and then with the therapist there to help them. Um, so we spend a little bit of time preparing them for that because that, you know, we want them to as much as possible be able to predict and expect what the physical environment is going to be like that day so they feel safe. You know, one of the biggest factors to ensuring a positive experience is what we call set and setting, which means helping prepare the person psychologically for what they're going to experience as best we can, at least give them some understanding of the territory of a psychedelic experience, and then the setting where it takes place, making sure that the physical space is comfortable and supportive of having people have you know experience where they may feel very uh, different um, on that day. And so we spend those eight hours in prep really preparing the person for that. Um, and then they have a psilocybin session. Both uh, professionals are there with them the entire day. And there's, a, there's some talking both to kind of get them ready for the session that morning when they come in. And then we have the dose of psilocybin that they take. And then we, you know, kind of are there uh, together, all three people, the volunteer uh, taking the psilocybin and their guides. And then we have a series of psychotherapy sessions that happen after that, both in the, the morning after, a week after that, and then there's a second psilocybin day at a higher dose. And so uh, following that, they then engage in therapy a little bit more after that as well. So that's kind of the nuts and bolts of... So during the day that they're there, are they just laying on the couch and... Is so any... From, like, do you talk... Or do they talk throughout or is there... Basically, so, they're having their experience and you're just there to kind of monitor and make sure. It depends. I mean, our, our general framework is that the default position for the individual is to have an inward experience. So the best we can, we prepare them for spending at least the first several hours, you know, somewhere between four and, and five hours or so that that time should be an inward time that we, you know, that's why we have the blindfold and the headphones. Um, however, there are some people who have experiences where they are externalizing some of that. They're talking or they're moving or their body's moving or they're asking for support and help. Um, there is, you know, a time at the beginning of these experiences, some for some people where they get anxious or nervous or fearful of what's happening. And so we're there for them in that moment. If they need to, you know, if they need to have some uh, physical support, you know, we will uh, hold their hand and kind of be there to kind of help physically ground them in the experience. We can also talk to them a little bit about that and help kind of 
help them work with and go into the experience a little more easily. So certainly that happens with some people. Some people are also perfectly great on their own that entire day and they, they just lie there, they're still, you know, and they're having, you know, at the end of the day we discover they've had all of these huge big experiences, but on the outside it looks like they were just laying there the entire time. And then we've had the opposite. We've had people who are moving and hands are flailing and, and body is twitching and there, you know, there's groaning and there's, there's laughter and, and all the things in between. So it can look very different and for different people. And so, you know, we kind of have our guidelines of wanting to make sure people are safe. And so we have certain guidelines about, you know, what we can allow and what we need to make sure that, you know, people do. Uh, for example, if someone wants to get off the couch, you know, they have to have support of the guides. We have to be there with them to help them because they can mm. feel disoriented. You know, if they need to use the bathroom, we need to make sure that they're safe, you know, walking to the bathroom, those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. But other than that, if they're on the couch, you know, and uh, they can move as much as they need to, you know, our guidelines for them are to go with it, go with your body, trust your body, trust your mind, trust yourself, Mm -hmm. that this experience will unfold in the way that it's meant to unfold for you on this day. And whatever we can do to help you go deeper, go into it, explore, be curious, be open, um, trust, let go. Uh, dive in, you know, we use all of these metaphors to help them um, understand that the way through this experience is to go into it, not to try to avoid it or go around. Now, what's interesting is that that's exactly the same advice I give to people in their day-to-day life. when mm-hmm. they have I'm a- like, where do I sign up for this psilocybin <laughs> experience? <Right. laughs> um, so, yeah, that's that's a little bit about that. And what do they, when they come out, what do they say? I mean, I'm sure that there's not one universe. I know there's universal um, descriptions that people have, but what do they typically say? Like, what are they seeing? What are they experiencing? What does it look like? You know, I wish there was a typical, like what I've noticed in my own experience, and I'm certainly not, you know, you know, there's certainly people who have a lot more experience than I do in this work. You know, one of them, you know, Mary Casamano, who's been at Hopkins for 20 years, she's done something over like 400 of these sessions with people on a variety of different studies, um, was part of the original studies that got started back again at Hopkins in the early 2000s. You know, she probably could have an answer to that about the typical. My experience is that it's atypical, meaning for me, most people are having such varied and different experiences that it's all over the place. You know, I, there certainly are some themes about, you know, if someone starts talking about love or connection and not everyone does, but if they start talking about that, there is some kind of similarities. I mean, people will, if they had a a mystical experience, then they will kind of start to use words about feeling connected or feeling awe or being kind of immersed in a space that feels very comfortable. Um, But not everybody has that experience. In fact, in fact, on our depression study, a lot of people are, maybe even most aren't having that kind of experience. They're having other kinds of experiences, like they're getting insight into themselves. They're gaining new understanding and awareness of, you know, their personal experiences in life or their relationships or the things that are getting in the way, the problems that they're having that are kind of co-creating a space that is conducive to depression, you know, meaning that they're getting insight into things they need to change in their environment to help them, you know, get out of this depressed state. Um, and so, and then we have people who don't have either of those, who just have challenging experiences. We've had people who've, you know, spent the entire day feeling terrified or anxious or 
Um, we've had one person who, you know, their experience was of being buried alive the entire first couple hours. They felt like they were spending the whole time uh, with hands pushing them underground. And, you know, interestingly, the backstory to that individual is that they had been chronically suicidal and depressed coming into the mm-hmm. study and also very socially anxious. And, and their experience in, in that session of being buried alive, they finally, they said, they just relented and said, okay, fine, I'm just going to die. I'm just going to be buried. I'm just going to live under the dirt in this experience. And the minute they did that, the minute they said they just relented to being dead or buried alive, their entire awareness shifted such that they realized that all of the hands that were burying them in the psilocybin experience were their own. That they were empowered to realize that it was something they were doing to themselves. And the minute that happened, they rose up from the ground in this experience and were completely alleviated of that. And, and then the experience kind of shifted and went into a whole different direction. What was amazing is we just saw this person um, a couple months ago for a six month follow-up or something and their suicidality has been gone ever since that day. And this wow. is someone who was chronically suicidal for about 10 years before psilocybin. So it's amazing. I mean, it, and there's some times where the experience is so clearly psychotherapeutic in that way, where it's like right, just the ex- the actual experience in exactly and is therapeutic. Is therapeutic, and there's sometimes where it makes much less sense to people, and yet they also might still have a benefit. They might still feel less depressed, even though they don't really know why. It doesn't necessarily always make that clear of a connection to make sense to people. And there are certainly some people who don't respond, and meaning that they don't. Not everyone in the study is getting better. So, you know, we have, you know, with every bit of media that gets out there about this being a magic bullet, I, I always want to add to that that it can be a magic bullet for some people, but it's not the end-all, be-all answer for everyone. And there certainly are people in our study who don't necessarily have an antidepressant uh, response to this experience. So with these mystical experiences that you see, have there been comparisons to people who have described or who have had past life regressions or who have had near-death experiences? Is there similarities or do people ever in these, in, in their, I, I don't want to call them a trip, what are they called? Uh, I think I feel like that's not use that word. Yeah, we use journey or session or okay. But yeah. journey is yeah. Probably. I like journey. In their journey, um, do they ever say like I, I mean the the buried alive thing was interesting. Do they ever say you know I remembered when I was in a it seemed like I don't know if, if clinically you would use the term past life, but it seemed like I had had the experience of being a slave in Egypt or a, um, I don't know, uh, I, I don't know, a Holocaust yeah. survivor, or, you know, some, some experience where they referred back to a period of time where they could describe in great detail what had happened to them. Do you see anything like that? So I have not personally seen it, it described in that way. There's certainly a lot of people who have experiences that are that are clearly not of their own life experience, right? Like, for example, one person, you know, had an experience of being this, like, fox deity, you know, where they kind of were this uh, this deity of this, like, fox civilization, and they kind of 
looked like a fox and were kind of like the head fox, right? So like, is that a past life? Maybe. I mean, if you, if you kind of think about it from a perspective of reincarnation, then people, you know, from that perspective would say you can be reincarnated as anything, not just Mm -hmm. form. And so maybe that's what it is. Now they didn't interpret it that way. They just interpreted it as this like fun experience of being this like fox deity. Um, So I haven't had anybody that's like said it in those words. Now, the words that we have heard are more things like near-death experiences. And and there is some scientific evidence that came out of London um, from Imperial College, where there's another big psychedelic research team, um, where they were comparing or or looking at kind of near-death experiences that that happened within uh, uh, and comparing that to kind of classic psychedelic experiences and uh, showing that there is overlap between, you know, kind of the report, the kind of the way in which that's described um, that is similar to psychedelics. And, and we certainly have had some people who felt that they had died. In fact, one of the things that we do to prepare people for these experiences is we talk about, you know, you know, if you feel like you're dying, if you feel like you're dissolving, if you feel like you're melting away, if you feel like you're obliterating into, you know, a thousand pieces, like go with it, like let yourself die, let yourself melt, let, let yourself dissolve, because that process could be opening up a different type of experience. And it may be a mystical one, it may be something else, but we want people to let themselves go deeper into whatever experience is coming up. And so, um, so yes, I don't know exactly, you know, my empirical mind wants evidence to understand these things. And I don't know that we have enough evidence yet to know exactly how all these things overlap in near death experience, past life, mm-hmm. uh, awareness, all of these different things, but certainly there's something at, you know, that overlaps among all of them, mm-hmm. nothing else overlapping in terminology and how we're processing them as humans and, and how we're making sense of it. Um, and how it, people describe them. They're so yeah. similar when you listen to a description. Mm-hmm. And I think the it's, when you listen to a description of someone's near-death experience, typically the ineffability is a big piece of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but just the – and the, the way it, it shifts and changes people's lives is so similar. Obviously, we can't necessarily create near-death experiences in that way but it sounds like in well, some ways could, but it would probably be unethical <laughs> yeah. and we're not guaranteed that someone's coming back from that right, one. <laughs> right. yeah so i was gonna say you- also there's a lot of overlap between paranormal phenomena and things like encountering entities uh, in the natural environment, alien abductions, things like that. There, you know, there's this there's this area in psychedelic research. We've done some of this and are going to publish it soon. Um, looking at entity encounters, you know, encounters like angels or or anything, like- angels, gnomes, you know, whatever the entity is, but having some kind of experience with some perceived other in a psychedelic experience. In, in this case, that I'm talking about specifically with DMT, um, where you perceive having some kind of autonomous experience with something, um, whether that's an angel, you know, the descriptors kind of range from being or spirit or angel to all the way to deceased family member or deceased friend to garden gnome, you know, to (laughs) alien. So it's perceived differently to different people and their experiences are different, but there are, those things happen without psychedelics. You know, we have, there's obviously spontaneous experiences of, contact with dead relatives that people have or contact with, you know, aliens that people have described. And so, you know, that's other, something else that's really interesting is, is, you know, are, are there also going to be similarities in those kinds of experiences between what is accessible 
with a psychedelic and what is, you know, what people are describing as occurring spontaneously. Mm-hmm. And can you, I have two more questions. One, can you speak to the co-creation of the mystical and the insight and the insight that seems so necessary to this? Because it's not just someone takes a journey and that's it. Right. There's, there's the insight that's so important. Absolutely. And there's a great book by um, Dr. Bill Miller and Janet uh, DeBaca or Celeste DeBaca uh, called Quantum Change. And that book really talks about the co-occurrence of mystical experience and insight experience and how that each in and of themselves might produce benefit. They might produce change, which makes sense, right? Like having either one. But if they happen together, that it might actually be more robust predictor of change. And it seems like in psychedelic studies, and we've started to look at this empirically more recently, that um, when these things co-occur, when people are reporting both inside and mystical experiences, that that seems to be related to positive outcome. Um, And so uh, we, you know, there's obviously more work that needs to be done to really definitively say that, you know, these two facets are the facets, you know, the two facets that that predict change, but they're certainly two important ones. Uh, There might be other things at the neurological level or the physical level. You know, there's a lot of interest by some people in psychedelic research about looking at inflammatory processes because there's some evidence emerging that psychedelics um, decrease inflammation. And of course, there's a lot of research in medical science looking at inflammation processes and how Mm -hmm. that's related to bad mental health. Like, there's a lot of other things that might be going on, but certainly those two seem to be Uh, really powerful mechanisms of of helping people with their problems. And the insightful piece of it is, is literally processing the experience, right? Well, it can be both. Insight can come uh, as part of the experience. Some people will report kind of getting a download or getting information in their Mm -hmm. experience that is new to them. Uh, Information Mm -hmm. about, you know, why they're having the problems they're having or, or information about, uh, a direction to go in life um, mm-hmm. or something they need to change and that that can come just spontaneously as part of the psychedelic experience or it can happen in the psychotherapy that happens after the psychedelic experience so we spend hours with people after the psychedelic experiences both in the late afternoon on their session day as well as the next morning and the weeks to come where we talk about all of those things we talk about what did they experience and we we start to do the process of making sense of that and starting to learn how to apply that experience into their life it's critical and this is one of the reasons why it doesn't it's not the case that everyone who takes a psychedelic at burning man all of a sudden you know mm-hmm. all of their problems some of them might be for sure but the therapy is really critical to this process at least in my opinion and in my experience on the trials that you know making sense of it and having trained therapists who can help you process it and really capitalize on the behavioral changes that need to occur to support this type of recovery um, is a very important piece. Mm -hmm. And of course, insight can come in that stage as well. Right. Yeah. Right. And how, what would you say is now your understanding of consciousness and death as a result of working my you know, I do explore death and consciousness. So as a result of working with these patients. Mm-hmm. It's a really great question. <laughs> I, um, I think 
and I, and I want to I want to make sure I emphasize that I think I don't know yet I don't think empirically I mean I think enough. if anybody knew right <laughs> right. <laughs> right this is like the big question mark I think that there is something universal that we are tapping into that there is something that cuts across individual and distinct and it and it cuts across our perception of what we think of in our reality about where we are right now and what it means to be alive and what it means to not be alive i think that we're cutting across these arbitrary definitions with these types of experiences and we're connecting and experiencing something that is beyond our capacity to understand um, what it is and by it you know that can be the universe that can be you know a lot of different things but I think that's what it is I think that these experiences let us connect into that space beyond um, our you know day-to-day separateness of and, and, and distance from these experiences I think they're a lot closer than we actually perceive on a day-to-day basis mm-hmm. and I don't know if that's because it's all inside of us and that we are it and that we are this process and so by definition it's with us all the time but we just don't access it because to mm-hmm. access that on a moment-by-moment basis might be overwhelming and terrifying and and ecstatic um, I don't know if it's in us or if it's outside of us or if it's both but I do think that these experiences are bringing us closer and into it mm-hmm. and I think you're there's so much that we don't understand and I think because of that, it's hard to put words to even describing what might be because it just, when people ask me when I, when you were describing the download situation, that's sometimes when I'm in meditations, I'll get what feels like just a download of information. And I'm like, oh, okay, I'll do that. You know, everything just gets really super clear for me about kind of next steps, whether it's career or family or whatever it might be. And Um, where was I going with this? And I think when people want to know exactly how that mechanism works, Mm -hmm. I can't describe it. All I can say is that it feels like I know, and it feels like a knowing that comes from, maybe it comes from within or outside of myself. I can't tell the difference, but it just feels so clear is the only way I can describe it. And then people want to know the why behind that, how that happens. And it's, we're all seeking that, I guess, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that it's so difficult to, um, because it's so difficult to put this into words, because it's so difficult to see beyond our limited capacity of, of perceiving everything as this or that, or it's separate or it's not, or it's connected or it's not. You know, our brain wants to put everything into a box and put it all into a nice little category. And I think that that is actually the opposite of probably what's going on. And I think when you look at other scientific domains like, you know, quantum physics and, and, you know, you go in that direction and you realize like, actually maybe there's some truth to that. Like maybe what we perceive as separate actually is not separate at all. Mm-hmm. So these experiences, whether accessed through meditation or psychedelics or other practices might kind of disentangle that separateness, even for an instant that allows something else to come up in consciousness. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, thank you so much for your time today, for this insight. 
How do I sign up? Where can I, where can I get in a study somewhere? Well, you know, I will say just for you and your listeners that um, if you're, if people are interested, it's actually surprisingly hard to get people to volunteer for these studies. It us- I know it's surprising. I but- mean, you make it sound so <laughs> amazing. How could anybody be like, I mean, I don't like the idea of like hands holding me back, but I feel uh-huh. like if you could get me, you know, to that next place, it would be pretty. Yeah. But we have a website, hopkinspsychedelic.org, um, and we, uh, for any study that we have going on, we will usually uh, both post it on that website, and there'll be information about how people can get involved in research. We also do, from time to time, um, both at Hopkins and in my new position at Ohio State, um, we do survey-based studies to, to have people kind of share their experiences um, and we also have a newsletter for the Hopkins clinical trials that people can sign up for and new studies that come up, which there's always several in development and new ones coming, both for people who have mental health problems and also for people who are what we call healthy volunteers, that we just need people to kind of donate their experience to science so that we can understand, you know, what happens when we give these substances to people. Um, people can follow that there and we'll let people know when and if those studies are opening up. So definitely if you're interested in these experiences, uh, and want to do it in a clinical research setting, then um, definitely you can find more information there. Okay. And if people want to find you specifically, where can they find you? And this will all be also on my show notes, but. Yeah, I think the easiest place to find me um, would be either through the Hopkins Psychedelic website. Um, my contact information uh, is available there. Also, um, in my new position, uh, I think in the College of Social Work at Ohio State, uh, people can uh, contact me through there as well. I'm trying not to boo everyone. I know. Go blue. I know you. Yeah, exactly. I know we feel the same way. (laughs) Yes. My new employer is great, but also go blue. (laughs) Thank you. Thank Thank you. you. Well, thanks so much for your time today. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Like what you heard today and want to hear more? Curious about what comes next and what it all means? You can subscribe on iTunes. Just go to podcasts and find life, death, and the space between and hit subscribe. And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Dr. Amy Robbins. Ask me any questions you might have. Let me know what else you'd love to hear about or just share your story. I can't wait to hear from you.